Welcome to the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Brian Winter. The radical libertarian economist Javier Millet placed first in Argentina's primary election, upsetting the two-party system of the past 20 years. What explains his rise? And does he actually have a chance to win when the real voting takes place in October? I'm not that surprised. I mean, uh, I've seen these things happening in other places in Latin America. So I would say, yeah, it took me by surprise that he got more than 30% of the vote. I wonder why it didn't happen before. I mean, why Argentina's party system was so resilient given the long period of economic decay that Argentina has suffered. Well, there's no question about it. Javier Millet is the man of the hour in Argentina. The 52-year-old libertarian with the unruly hair who describes climate change as a socialist lie, who advocates closing the central bank and adopting the U.S. dollar as the official currency, who describes Argentina's political class as a self-dealing caste, responsible for decades of economic stagnation. This is the person who placed first in Argentina's primary elections on Sunday, echoing recent outsiders on the right, like Donald Trump and Jair Bolsonaro both of whom Millet has said he admires. Now, two points are worth making here. The first is that votes cast on Sunday don't actually count. In Argentina's system, it was almost like a test election or a very accurate poll. The real voting won't happen until October, so there's still a long way to go. The second point, look, while Millet was clearly the surprise, placing much better than most people expected, it was actually a narrow victory for him. Two other coalitions came within just three percentage points of Millet's support. So this really is a three-way race now, and it's wide open. So today on the podcast, now that the dust is settling just a bit, we want to talk about Millet, but also the two other candidates. Sergio Massa of the governing Peronist Coalition and Patricia Bullrich of the center-right, the party of former President Mauricio Macri. We want to assess the challenges facing all of them, the road ahead in their campaigns, what all of this means for Argentina's troubled economy, which is wrestling with inflation above 110%, and finally, most critically, how any of these figures might govern if they end up winning the race. Our guest is Ignacio Labaki. He is a senior analyst at Medley Global Advisors and professor at the Universidad Católica Argentina. He is especially good at explaining Argentine politics to an international business audience. Ignacio, welcome to the AQ Podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Nice to be here. Ignacio, before we get started with the nitty-gritty political questions, I just want to ask you, what has been the vibe, the feeling on the streets of Buenos Aires? Not so much among the political crowd, but among your friends and family in these days since the election took place. Are people shocked, confused, optimistic? I mean, how are you, what are you hearing? I would say like 
They are like in an old Led Zeppelin song, dazed and confused. I'm not that surprised. I mean, uh, I've seen these things happening in other places in Latin America. So I would say, yeah, it took me by surprise that he got more than 30% of the vote. I wonder why it didn't happen before. I mean, why Argentina's party system was so resilient, given the long period of economic decay that Argentina has suffered. Yeah, I mean, it was clearly an election that just from a political science perspective was ripe for an outsider. And just like you, as an American who mostly follows these days Brazil, having been through the elections of Donald Trump and Jair Bolsonaro, this didn't seem like that big a surprise. No, in that sense, no. But basically, there was all this issue with polls, which I I always thought that Argentinian polls were quite unreliable, especially those that were leaked to the press because we didn't know actually who was leaking the poll. I mean, in other countries, the press demands pollsters to reveal who actually commissioned the survey. This is not the case, but there were also methodological issues with people not answering polls that created a bias, right? And so I think in that sense, it took, I would say, both the government and people in Juntos por el Cambio by surprise. Well, so let's talk about Javier Millet. Clearly the story of the moment. I will also confess that even though this seemed like an election that was ripe for an outsider because of the frustration with Argentina's two political groups of the last decade plus, I will confess that I thought Millet might be too out of touch or non-aligned with what I've thought of as being mainstream Argentine views. I'm talking about on issues like abortion, for example, which he is against, on climate change, which he has described as a, a socialist hoax. Do you agree with that? I mean, is he so out of touch? And more importantly, do you see a path for him to get to the 50% plus one of votes that he would need to become Argentina's next president? Well, I would say that Argentina has been moving towards the right. Argentinian society over the past years, there was a, a poll about religious beliefs released in 2019, precisely the year in which Alberto Fernandez won the presidency, in which you already had evidence that society was moving to the right, silently perhaps. And when you go to polls, abortion was not something that an issue that obtained majoritarian support. So uh, in that sense, I'm not that surprised that 30% of the electorate voted for Javier Millet. But 30% is one thing. The question is, if in an eventual runoff, which would still be three months away as we record this, how does a figure like that, if at all, get to the majority of votes that he would need? Well, I would say that looking at the comparative experience from Latin America, it all depends on who he confronts in the runoff. Second, what's his first round vote? Third, what's the lead that he has, assuming that he is a lead in the first round? I mean, runoff reversals are the exception rather than the rule. I mean, uh, uh, basically about one third of 
run of elections have been reversed in the sense that the order of the first round was reversed in the second round, right? They have become more frequent recently, but they are still a rare case. So it depends on who he has in front. Who comes with him at this point? I mean, I was struck, again, building on the Trump and Bolsonaro comparisons. Those two guys did have some coattails. Trump was able to bring in a Republican Congress. Uh, Bolsonaro, while it's true that he didn't really have much of a political party when he was elected in 2018, there were governors, legislators who were elected essentially by positioning themselves, at least temporarily, as part of Bolsonaro's group. Millet, on the other hand, I've seen his candidates have lost badly in some of these gubernatorial elections. His block of legislators in Congress is projected to be very small as well. Is this as personalistic a movement as it looks like? And how big of a challenge would that pose to him if he was actually elected president? Well, I would say that it's a huge challenge. It's the whole question about governability, because it's not just about basically having a legislative majority. It's also about filling the positions in the public administration. And I don't think that he has enough cadres to do that. So my sense is that he will have to, eventually, if he wins the election, he'll have to seal some sort of alliance with some of the parties of what he calls the case, right? The partisan establishment. Ideally, certain factions that of Juntos por el Cambio, but also certain groups within Peronism too, because otherwise he will lack personnel. And some of these more radical proposals of his, like to abolish the central bank, to dollarize, in that context, should we be treating those proposals seriously? If he gets enough support in Congress, definitely. I mean, to abolish the central bank, it's to me, it's an euphemism, because if you adopt a currency board scheme, like the one that Argentina had in the 1990s, the facto you are abolishing the central bank. If you dollarize the economy, the central bank no longer does monetary policy, right? So it's basically the same thing. The central bank can no longer print money to finance the government. The central bank can no longer print money to provide support to financial institutions. So uh, the central bank, it's basically an institution that has a very limited role under a currency world or dollarization scheme. The issue is whether he has a strong mandate to do that. 30% is not a strong mandate. Well, and let's keep in mind that this Paso election was not even really the first round. It, in some ways, is a very accurate opinion poll that has taken three months before the final round of voting. So there's still a long way to go. What challenges do you see for Patricia Bullrich at this point? Because she looks to me, uh, this referring, of course, to the former security minister for Mauricio Macri, who's her coalition, the center-right Juntos por el Cambio, came in a very close second in this race. But she looks a little boxed in to me. It's not clear whether she'll try to go to the center to find votes or whether she'll try to go to the right to take some of these votes away from Javier Millet. How would you handicap her odds as we sit here today? I would say that it makes no sense 
going to the right to search for borders because the right is already occupied by a strong presence, which is Javier Milei. So first task is to make sure that all the people that voted for Horacio Rodríguez Larreta vote for her. You're referring, Ignacio, to the mayor of Buenos Aires, whom Bullrich defeated in her party's primary and was seen as a more centrist figure. So that's her first priority. Then the turnout at the Paso was below 70 percent. Four years ago, turnout was 76 percent. She has to basically leave behind the sort of very fierce dispute that I think it was very problematic for Juntos por el Cambio and try to come close to what has been the historical vote of Juntos in general elections, which is 40 percent of the vote. Let's pause for a moment in this discussion of candidates. And and let me ask you your best sense of why people are voting right now. And now it's clear that so much of what we're seeing is an angry anti-establishment vote. And that that is one of the big reasons why Millet did so well. But thinking about these voters that Bullrich will have to win over and that are potentially there for Massa as well, what do you think is their main motivation? I would say that there's a sentiment of disenchantment that prevails within the electorate, right? Disenchantment and frustration, disappointment. There's also an anti, let's call it anti-apparatus, state apparatus vote, in the sense that you look at Juntos por el Cambio and sort of that the underdog won the primary. Rodríguez Larreta had all the possible structural advantages to win the nomination in Juntos por el Cambio. He had a, a cash flow of resources because he managed one of the wealthiest districts in Argentina, right? And you had Massa, who basically runs the state apparatus, the national state apparatus, and he also did poorly. So there's a, I think that there's an end of to the Kirchnerista paradigm of the state fixes everything. Is that the big, ultimately the big change that comes out of this election? Does this mark the end of the Kirchnerista cycle? that has been dominating Argentine politics in some way, shape, or form for the last 20 years? I would say so, but it's depending on the outcome of the election in Buenos Aires province, it could be a long agony because if Kisilov manages to win in October... He's the Kirchnerista candidate for governor in the Provincia de Buenos Aires and did quite well on Sunday. I mean, he did okay, But if he manages to survive, it would guarantee some extra life to Kirchnerism. But when you look at the outcome of the primaries and the vote in Kirchnerista strongholds such as La Matanza falling below 50%, that tells you that Cristina Kirchner is no longer what she used to be, that Kirchnerism is no longer a political force that can deliver landslide victories in the great Buenos Aires area. It's true that the presidential candidate for Kirchnerismo, at least in name, this election cycle, he's not even that associated with her. I'm talking, of course, about Sergio Massa, the economy minister. How do you assess his chances at this point? Is it 
over for him? Or do you think there's still a scenario under which he could not only make the runoff, but actually be elected president? Well, as Lenny Kravitz used to sing, it ain't over till it's over. I love that we've had Lenny Kravitz and Led Zeppelin in the first couple minutes of the podcast. That's a first for us. So I wouldn't say that he has no chances now, but evidently the next couple of months are going to be quite uh, nasty in economic terms when you think that the currency uh, was devalued by more than 20%, that inflation is going to accelerate, and that Massa is the Minister of Economy. I mean, all he has left for campaign it's to basically try to exploit fear, fear towards a runoff between two right-wing candidates. But the same strategy was used before the primaries, and it didn't pay off. I asked you about the sentiment on the street today. Let me ask you about the sentiment in markets and in the business world, where I know because of your, your work, you have a lot of contact with that world what are you hearing from them? And we, we see very clearly in this volatility in markets since the result on Sunday that there's some pessimism out there. But what specifically are people concerned about? Well, I would say that from a market standpoint, the sort of three-thirds scenario, three-horse race in which there is, you have the three main political forces separated by less than three points. It's the worst possible scenario. And especially when you see that the front runner is an outsider that poses a question about governability. Markets do not like uncertainty. And what we do have now is uncertainty, uncertainty about who's going to win the election, uncertainty about who's going to be in the runoff with Javier Milei, and uncertainty in the case that Milei wins, how is he going to rule? It's interesting because someone looking at this election from the outside in, not knowing all the details, might say, hey, look, you know, if you add up the votes of these two right of center, I mean, in the Malay's case, very right of center candidates who are reformist, who want change, the odds are actually pretty good of there being substantial market-based changes to Argentina's economy. But based on what you're describing, we're not seeing that many people buy into that more bullish scenario. Why? Well, possibly because, first, there's a great concern about Argentina's payment capacity. Argentina's debt burden is very low, but central bank reserves are being depleted. So I would suspect that there is a, a great uncertainty about how Argentina is going to meet its debt payments in the near future. Then is the question about governability. How Basically, right-wing administration that uh, lacks enough congressional support is going to carry ahead a reformist agenda. The uh, challenges for a stabilization plan are enormous. I mean, you need an accurate diagnosis of the economic situation, willingness to enact a stabilization plan, political capacity to go ahead with that, and a strong social mandate to basically muddle through the initial months in office, which are going to be very hard because any stabilization plans usually begins with inflation going up. Well, and it's, you know, the, the specter of there being protests, violence, or worse, is always real. 
when we start talking about stabilization plans and ajuste in Argentina. We've seen it before. How likely is it that we'll see a viable path for reform? Well, it depends on who wins the election, right? I would suspect that a Juntos por el Cambio administration or even a Peronist reformist administration would have a greater chance of uh, launching a successful stabilization plan, basically because of the political support. The next administration will have to deliver probably by the second semester of next year with a steep decline in inflation. Otherwise, it will see a quick uh, meltdown of popularity, like the one that we, we have seen in other places in Latin America that face less acute problems, like Petro in Colombia or like Boric in Chile. You mentioned earlier this idea that Argentina is moving to the right. There's clearly some truth to that. I wonder sometimes if we overstate these shifts when what people are really doing is voting against incumbents. I mean, just as it was not true that the region had swung definitively to the left with this new pink tide, now it might be too much to say that there's a meaningful shift to the right. But beyond the left versus right question, Ignacio, what what does this election tell us about broader changes happening in Argentine society? Well, again, I would stress this idea that the Kirchnerista paradigm of the state fixes everything is in decay. I mean, I would tend to think that the pandemic put that paradigm into crisis, right? In a way, it has become the choking state. What do you mean by that? In the sense that the tax burden for those that are uh, registered workers is too high or for businessmen that, I mean, in the pandemic, the quarantine lasted long and there were some abuses, especially with uh, provincial administrations. So there's a great deal, a great amount of state intervention and the state has failed to be an efficient provider of public goods. And so in a way that paradigm has entered into crisis. I'm not saying that it's Washington consensus reload or that people want the next administration to privatized all the state-owned firms, but evidently some portion of the electorate has grown tired or doesn't buy anymore the narrative that has been put forward by Kirchnerism. Well, and or some of them are just lashing out against the political class writ large, right? I mean, I am part of multiple WhatsApp groups in Argentina. There's been a lot of conversation in these groups since the voting took place. And, and one friend the morning after the election confessed to the group that he had voted for Millet. And he said, well, you know, at least he hasn't stolen. I'm, I'm reading from this WhatsApp list. He says, well, at least he hasn't stolen. Let's see right now what they let him do and what he knows how to do. You know, and then he went on to to basically say that they should just kick out everybody who's part of the political caste. And that kind of rhetoric sounds very familiar to somebody who watched Trump get elected in 2016 or Bolsonaro get elected in 2018. Yeah, I would say that there is that sentiment that if you are part of the political elite, you get privileges. And to a certain extent, I would say there is some truth in there. When you look at pensions, you see a lot of special regimes that benefit judges, diplomats, people in the military, researchers, public university professors, 
and people that can retire at 45 or 50 years old from the police, from the uh, jail, jail guards, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And those people are enjoying a set of privileges. And naturally, when uh, the bulk of the population is living under duress, it's quite annoying to see that. So I'm not justifying uh, Millet's voters, but it's a typical phenomenon that when the economic situation is bad, people tend to believe that the country is rich, I am poor, then there is this caste of privileged people that are corrupt. So that kind of thought, it's very common in these situations. And it's, it hasn't been, it's not that it has not been seen in other parts of Latin America. Ignacio, final question. I know that because of your political risk work, you're often asked to have a call. Do you have one? About the election? Yeah, I mean, who's going to win? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's hard to say. I would suspect that if Patricia Bullrich manages to get into the runoff, she can defeat Millet. Massa, I'm not that sure because of the economic cost of the measures that he has been forced to adopt. Do you see Millet in a runoff almost no matter what at this stage? Well, it depends on turnout because my understanding is that it could be that this was Millet's best election because it was the opportunity to express anger without paying a high price. So I'm not that sure that he's going to fare better in the first round. Let's think about four years ago. Alberto Fernandez obtained 48% of the vote in the primary and then 48% of the vote in the first round, whereas Macri grew by eight, nine points between the primary and the general election. So it could be the case that this was Millet's best election. We will see. Uh, we will see, I think, is the, the most honest thing to say about an election where so many of the candidates were so close. It really is a, an unpredictable three-way race. And we appreciate you being with us today to, to walk through some of what we know and, and some of what we don't know as well. Ignacio, thanks for being with us on the AQ Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the America's Quarterly Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review, give us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly Podcast is produced by Luisa Franco and edited in partnership with Human Group Media. <laughs>